you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 19 today. First Peter chapter 4, as you're turning there, I just I thought on my way in this morning, what a, what a great picture it is that after all this time of no rain on Sunday, the Lord's Day, we get some rain because God promises that as the rains come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, so is his word, that it will not return empty, but it will accomplish that for which he sent it. So this morning, you might feel dusty and dry in your souls, but the good news is there's rain coming. So get ready to drink deeply. So listen to the words here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, when we come to our passage this morning, we come to a great example, I think, of how God's word is both realistic and revolutionary. And I love it for both of those things. Let me explain what I mean. It's realistic because it acknowledges the pain of life. The passage we're looking at, if you notice, it's filled with words like trials, suffering, insults. Why? Because life is filled with those things. I've heard it said that everyone you meet is either going through suffering, just coming out of suffering, or getting ready to enter into it. And if you've been around a little while, you know there's a lot of truth to that. And the Bible doesn't shy away from painting a realistic picture of the trials that we'll face in this life. And Peter's goal in these verses, and my goal in our sermon this morning, is to help prepare us to face suffering as followers of Jesus. God has given us this passage and put it in our Bibles to equip us to walk through suffering well. Now, I want to address a couple things up front that I think will help us frame this passage. First, while there are many ways to suffer in life, Peter does have a particular kind of suffering in mind here. And the suffering he's talking about is suffering for being and living like a Christian. And you can see that several places. Let me just point those out. Scan your eyes onto verse 13. See, he says, if we share Christ's sufferings, Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ. Verse 16, anyone who suffers as a Christian. 
So there's a particular kind of suffering he has in mind. Now, often we read in our Bibles, we talk about suffering, and the first thing people jump to is they say, well, you know, we don't really face persecution, so I'm not really sure how this applies to me. And what they mean is, well, we're not beaten or imprisoned or killed for our faith here. Therefore, we, we face no suffering on account of Jesus. That does happen other places, but that's not what Peter's talking about here. In fact, what kind of suffering is Peter talking about? Let's think back on what he's told us in his letter. In chapter 2, verse 12, he talks about when people will speak against them as evildoers. In chapter 3, verse 16, he talks about when they would be reviled and slandered. In chapter 4, verse 4, we saw that people would be surprised when they don't join in their sin and they would malign them for it. And then here in our own passage in verse 16, we see that they're insulted for the name of Christ. So this is the kind of suffering Peter's talking about here. Being mocked, insulted, and slandered for being a follower of Christ. So for us, in our current context, this might mean having trouble at work because you won't go along with certain policies that promote sin. It might mean getting made fun of because you refuse to join in crude jokes or because you won't do certain things in dating relationships that unbelievers will. You might face insults from family because of the way you raise your kids according to biblical principles. Or you might just be labeled by others as hate-filled or narrow-minded because you believe that trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the only way to be right with God. That's the kind of suffering Peter's talking about here. So I want us to see that while we may not face some of these more egregious forms of persecution, don't dismiss this passage and think this has nothing to do with me. The kind of sufferings that we are starting to face now is exactly the kinds of suffering Peter's talking about. Now, while I want to be clear on that, that that's the kind of suffering Peter's talking about, it's also legitimate to apply much of what Peter says here about suffering for Christ to other forms of suffering as a Christian as well. We know this is true because for the Christian, God is working all things together for our good, and that means all forms of suffering. So the various trials that Peter talked about in 1.6, he said you will face trials of various kinds, they include all kinds of suffering. They include painful sickness, debilitating injury, the death of a loved one, broken relationships, financial pressures, a difficult marriage, a broken relationship, deep loneliness, and dark depression. So what I want you to hear is that whatever suffering you might be facing this morning as a follower of Jesus, this word is for you. The Bible knows the trials we face, and it has something to say to us to help prepare us for them. So that's what makes our passage realistic this morning, is that it's in touch with the real struggles that you and I face. But it's not just realistic, it's also revolutionary. Because for most people in our world, the goal in suffering is simply survival, right? Just endure, 
just get through it until the suffering is over. And that's what we'd expect. If you want to hear someone talk about suffering, you expect to hear them talk about how you can manage it, how you can cope with it, how you can get through it. But Peter says, no, no, no. God's goal for you in suffering is so much better than that. He doesn't want you to simply grit your teeth and get through it. Through Peter, God actually calls us in this passage to rejoice in our suffering. Now, if you're honest, that can sound crazy at first. Like, that's just not what we do, Peter. We, we, we don't rejoice. In fact, it's their antithesis, right? But Peter wants us to see that it's really not as crazy as it seems if we see suffering the right way. So to prepare us to suffer well this morning, Peter's going to give us six reminders about suffering. So you can go ahead and throw that up if we have that sign. Here we go. So six reminders about suffering to help us think about it rightly. Here's what he calls us to do. Verse 12, expect suffering. Verse 13, rejoice in suffering. In 14, suffer for the right reasons. In verse 16, glorify God without shame. In verses 17 and 18, remember your suffering is temporary and purifying. And finally, in verse 19, trust God while doing good. The suffer for the right reason should actually be verse 15. I just now realized. But let's look at the first reminder that Peter gives us in verse 12. Look there. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So the first thing out of the gate Peter wants us to know about suffering is that we shouldn't be surprised by it. Instead, we should expect it. Now, he's, there's a contrast here. If you remember, scan your eyes up to chapter 4, verse 4. Remember back there where uh, Pastor Ben preached? We saw that unbelievers, they're surprised. What are they surprised by? When we don't join them in their sin. They're like, well, that's just that's just how people are. And so when you don't go along with them, it says, they're surprised. But Peter says, we, on the other hand, shouldn't be surprised when as a result of our not joining them, we then face suffering. Being mistreated for being a Christian is in no way unexpected. In fact, it's exactly what Jesus promised us. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulations so there's just as like there's promises of good to come he also promises there's going to be hard things and in john 15 he told us why he said if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it has hated you if they persecuted me they will persecute you friends the gospel is not a bait and switch There is nowhere in it that it doesn't promise us easy, healthy, comfortable lives when we follow Jesus. So that when suffering comes our way because we're following him, we're caught off guard and say, whoa, whoa, wait, this is not what I signed up for. That's not the message of the gospel. Instead, the message of Christianity is all about a savior who was misunderstood, who was mocked, who was hated, who was arrested, who was treated unjustly, who suffered for doing good. And Peter already told us that Christ suffered for us, both to save us from our sins and 
to leave us an example that we might follow in his steps. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. The Bible doesn't mince any words, friends. It's crystal clear. This garbage about a health and prosperity that comes to you for believing in Jesus is just that. It's garbage. And it is not in the Bible. The Bible says unequivocally, if you belong to Jesus, you will suffer. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not unclear. And in the same way, Peter here tells these beloved believers to expect suffering. And the reason he wants them to not be surprised is because our expectations change our experience don't they when you expect something to come you can be ready for it you can be prepared you will respond differently to it think about soldiers soldiers expect to be shot at in war right when a soldier goes to war and the bullets start flying you don't hear them going whoa 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 what are you what's going on what are you guys doing That's what he knows is coming, right? Now, that doesn't mean that it's easy. That doesn't mean that it's not scary. But because he knows it's coming, it helps him prepare for it and be ready. And that's what Peter's doing here. Suffering is coming. And he wants us to be ready for it. He doesn't want us to be surprised by it so that it starts to shake our faith and throws us off balance and we start to spin into confusion and uncertainty thinking, wait a minute, if I'm following Jesus, this isn't supposed to happen. He says, no, no, no. There's nothing strange about suffering for following Jesus. So we shouldn't get riled up and be like, how dare this happen? Any more than the soldiers should say, how dare they're shooting at me? We are to expect suffering. Now, that's the bad news in verse 12, right? But there's also some good news tucked in here, some really good news. Did you notice that Peter called this suffering a fiery trial? And he says it has a purpose to test us. Why does he call it a fiery trial? Well, think back with me. Where else in this letter has Peter talked about fire testing us? Back in chapter 1. You can flip there. Look at back in chapter 1, verse 6. Look at what Peter said there. He said, in this, this is the living hope that we've been born again to, the unshakable inheritance that's coming our way. He said, in this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter's doing here is the fiery trials in chapter 4 verse 12 are the various trials in chapter 1 verse 6. And just like in chapter 1, Peter wants us to see that God is sovereign over our suffering and he's using it for our good. These fiery trials we face are purifying and proving our faith in Jesus. They're showing that our trust in him is real 
It's not just a show. We're not fair weather Christians. He says, your faith is real and Jesus really is your treasure. It's so tempting, isn't it, when we suffer to think, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Maybe, maybe God doesn't love me after all. Where is he? If, 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 he's, if he loves me, why am I going through this? But Peter wants us to know it's because God loves us and he's working in our suffering to test us and show that our faith is genuine and real. Friends, if you are a believer, your pain is not purposeless. Your sufferings are not a sign of God's absence, but a sign of his purifying presence. So take heart, Christians, and don't be surprised when the fiery trials come. Expect suffering, why? Because your God has promised to keep working until he's finished what he began in you. Okay, so if we shouldn't be surprised by suffering, how should we respond when suffering comes? Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you now again don't just gloss over this because you've heard it before if you've been in church just think what a strange thing to say when you suffer rejoice that is so counterintuitive so why in the world should i rejoice peter when i face sufferings he gives us two reasons in these verses first we rejoice when we share christ's sufferings now so that we can also rejoice in glory later. You see that? He says, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, well, how does that work? Well, when we're able to rejoice in suffering for Jesus, it shows we really belong to him. It shows that our real joy is in heaven with him and that we truly have been born again to a living hope. In other words, we are so closely united to him by faith that we're now facing the same hostility we faced. You remember when Saul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So as those Christians were facing persecution, Jesus is saying, that's my persecution. That's my suffering. So we are so closely united with Jesus that we are sharing Christ's sufferings. And Peter knows what he's talking about here, right? He's not just speaking from an ivory tower. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles were arrested for teaching about Jesus. And when they refused to stop, they were beaten for it. And you know how they responded to this suffering? Listen to Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I mean, this is crazy. They walked out of there saying, yes, thank you, Jesus, that we got to suffer for you. It's as though, like they said, we've been doing a lot of good stuff. We've been teaching, we've been telling people about you, and I think we're doing the right stuff, but I don't know. It feels like we're missing something, missing something. And then they suffer and it's like, that's it, thank you. Now we get to suffer. We've show, you've shown us that we're worthy to suffer for you. So the question is, what in the world possibly motivates that kind of joy in suffering? It's 
because they knew that their suffering testified to an even greater joy that awaited them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Those disciples heard that. They knew when they walked out of there, they're saying, it happened. He said, blessed are you when these things happen and they just happen. You know what that means? You know what that means? That means my reward is great in heaven. Romans 8 has a similar promise. There Paul tells us that you and I, Christians, are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And isn't this the same pattern we've seen over and over in the book of 1 Peter? Suffering now, glory later. Jesus' suffering led to glory, and when we belong to him by faith, so too will ours. And not only will we rejoice, not only will rejoicing and suffering now lead to later joy, it will actually lead to greater joy. When verse 13, that phrase there in your Bibles, it probably says, rejoice and be glad. That's one way to translate it, but what Peter's doing is he's piling up these joy words. And so it's almost like saying, rejoice with great joy. Like, being joyful, be joyful. Joy, joy, joy. He's just like, he's stumbling over his words. Like, I don't know how to express to you that if you suffer with him now, if you rejoice in sufferings now, later, you're going to be bubbling over with joy inexpressible. Same way Paul said, there's a glory coming that's not worth comparing to anything that you're going to face now. So when you face suffering for him now, Rejoice. That's one reason. Then in verse 14, Peter gives us another reason to rejoice, as if that weren't enough. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says, we can rejoice in suffering for Christ because we're blessed. How are we blessed? The spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Oftentimes, if you're anything like me, People can think that they can be afraid that if the situation ever called for it and they're called to suffer for Jesus, and that could be the full spectrum, right? Either from saying the hard thing in a group all the way to being a martyr. Anywhere in between there. We're afraid that if the situation calls for it, when it comes right down to it, I don't, I don't know if I'll be able. I don't know if I'll be strong enough. I don't know if I'll be courageous enough. I don't know if I've got what it takes. But the wonderful news, friends, in verse 14 is that when we suffer, God himself draws near and comes to us in our need. He doesn't leave us to our own strength as we face those trials. When you get to that moment, the Spirit himself rests upon you. The Spirit keeps us trusting strengthens us to stand, gives us words to say, and draws us to Jesus. He's called the spirit of glory here because he provides this foretaste of that glory that's coming. We don't have it all yet, 
But the spirit in us is the spirit of glory because he's that down payment, that guarantee, that sampler of, hey, that's what's coming to you, Christian. This is why many of you, myself included, would testify that our greatest experience of the beauty and the power of Christ hasn't it often been in your deepest sufferings? Because there's something that happens in our sufferings, particularly when we suffer for Christ, where the spirit of God and of glory rests upon us. Think of Stephen as he's being martyred. He's proclaiming Jesus. And you know what it says right before he dies? It says, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit. What does he do? He looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus. And he can take the stones, the insults. He can take everything that they're throwing at him. Why? Because the spirit of God and of glory rests upon him. And he sees Jesus. And he sees the glory. And he sees the reward. And he says, come what may. I know what's coming. And that's what he does for us, Christian. Whether it's someone being asked to be martyred. Or whether it's you having to speak up in a conversation at work. Or say the uncomfortable thing to your family at Thanksgiving. We don't suffer alone. So when we suffer for Christ, don't be surprised. Rejoice. Because as surely as we suffer with him now, so surely will we also rejoice with unspeakable joy when his glory is revealed. And rejoice because we don't suffer by ourselves, but God's spirit is with us. Okay, now let's look at verse 15 for the next reminder Peter wants to give us about suffering. He says there, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, this might sound strange, but what Peter's doing here is he's saying, in other words, what he wants us to know is that we are to suffer for the right reasons. Because there is a kind of suffering for which we won't be blessed, right? If we do something wrong and suffer the consequences, That's not suffering for Jesus. There's no great blessing in getting the just punishment for what you did wrong. But Peter calls us here, he says, avoid that kind of suffering. He says, remember, we are to be holy in all our conduct. Don't give people a reason to discredit you or your witness. Instead, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. Don't suffer needlessly by doing what's wrong. And in verse 15 here, Peter seems to work his way. We got to ask, why is there, is there an order here? Why does he list these things and why does he go into order he does? It seems as though he's working his way down, doesn't it? From things that are obviously major wrongs, ending with one that probably surprises us. First, he says, don't suffer as a murderer. Sounds obvious, right? Should go without saying, but he says, don't suffer as a murderer. In other words, hey, Christian, don't go out and kill someone, and when they haul you off to jail, sit there and say, I'm being treated this way because I'm a Christian. No, you're being treated this way because you murdered someone. Similarly, don't suffer as a thief. Don't take what belongs to others. Then he throws in a catch-all word that we somewhere in between being a meddler and being a thief just says don't suffer as an evildoer there's lots of stuff you could put in that junk drawer of evildoer but then he adds that last one don't suffer as a meddler you're like 
you know, I just hope as a parent, I never want my child to grow up to be a murderer or a thief or a meddler, right? That was a joke, people. No, nobody says that, okay? I'm just making sure you're still with me here. And this is a unique word, actually. It's a word that shows up nowhere else in the Bible. In fact, it shows up nowhere else in any other literature of the day. Most commentators think Peter probably coined it himself. He just made it up. It's made up of two words that mean, one word means belonging to another, and another word means overseer. So the idea is kind of, don't be someone who's trying to oversee something that belongs to someone else. In other words, don't meddle in things that don't concern you. Don't stick your nose in someone else's business. In other words, what Peter's saying here is don't be obnoxious, Christian. Don't be annoying or a pest. Don't be argumentative and rant about your opinions on things. Don't be tactless and rude. Don't go around feeling like it's your job to tell everyone that what they're doing wrong. As one pastor said it, suffer for righteousness, not for self-righteousness. To put it really simply and starkly, Peter's saying, don't be a jerk. And then when people get upset at you, call it persecution. You're not suffering in that situation because you're a Christian. You're suffering because you're obnoxious. And Peter's point is that as exiles and outsiders, there's already plenty of reasons that you'll face suffering for being a Christian. Don't give people more excuses to mistreat you. As believers, we will suffer, but let's make sure we're suffering for the right reasons. Which is where Peter goes next in verse 16. So he said, don't, don't suffer for those things. Verse 16, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, what's easy to miss here when you read over that is that you and I, we're just so used to being called Christians that it doesn't, just doesn't land on us at all. But at this time, that wasn't a widely used term yet. In fact, the term Christian was meant more as an insult in this point. People, were, people called followers of Jesus Christians to mock them or stigmatize them. It was not meant to be a flattering thing. I tried to think of what a, a modern day equivalent, the best I could come up with, is it'd be like if somebody today found out that you were a Christian, they're like, oh, I heard about you. You're one of those Jesus freaks, aren't you? They're not, that's not a flattering thing to say. They're, that's not a compliment when they call you a Jesus freak. They're trying to shame you or make you feel weird or dumb or backwards. That's what they were doing with the term Christian. But Peter flips the name on its head and says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Glorify God in that name. Embrace that title as a badge of honor. Now think with me, why would we not need to be ashamed? We don't need to be ashamed because we don't seek our honor or our approval from society. 
Isn't that what it means to be ashamed? We're ashamed when there's someone's approval that we want but don't have. We want to fit in, but we don't measure up to their standards. Think about any of the times that you're tempted to feel ashamed and then ask, whose approval am I seeking? Whose standards am I trying to measure up to? Like sometimes people feel ashamed because of what they they own. Their car's too old. They don't have the latest phone. Their clothes aren't as nice. Why why do they feel ashamed? That's that's a, a silly thing to feel ashamed about. It's because there's a standard out there that they want to meet. They want to have someone's approval by looking a certain way and owning a certain thing. Or in, in your job, you might feel ashamed that you're not as good at something as somebody else. Well, you shouldn't feel ashamed, but there's a standard, there's an approval. You, you want the boss and the company to, to look favorably upon you and to say, you're the best employee, but you don't have it, and so you, you feel ashamed. Peter's saying, as Christians, we don't need to be ashamed to suffer for following Christ because we no longer seek our honor and approval from the world around us. We're not trying to impress them or be accepted by them. And here's the secret. When you stop seeking your honor from society, it loses its power to make you feel ashamed. If I'm not seeking it from you, it doesn't matter to me if you don't give it. I wasn't seeking it from you in the first place. As Christians, we have acceptance with God through Jesus. As Peter said in chapter 2, verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. God has promised that when we believe in Christ, we'll have honor, and we will not be put to shame before him. So if I'm going to have honor from God, and if I won't be put to shame when I stand before him and my life is laid bare before him, he says, don't worry, Dan, you won't be put to shame. Why in the world would I care what my neighbor thinks about me? And this is how we glorify God in the name Christian. We glorify God when we joyfully follow Jesus, even if that means suffering. Because when we do that, When we joyfully follow Jesus, even if it means suffering, we're showing the world that Jesus is more valuable to me than the approval of others. It may cost me my reputation, but oh, I have Jesus. It may cost me a promotion at work, but I have Jesus. It may mean I don't have something else that that my neighbors have. There may be real harm or cost to me but I say as long as I have Christ I have what I need I thought about this and these might be silly examples but it reminded me of like when uh think back to when you're younger I don't know junior high maybe high school it's like when a guy is willing to hold hands with his girlfriend even though his buddies will tease him right they're like, oh, look at you. You got your little girlfriend. But, you know, but she wants to hold his hand because she likes him. Why, what is he saying when he's willing to hold her hand even though they're giving him a hard time? He's saying, look, fellas, uh, her approval means a lot more to me than yours does. She's a lot prettier than you, right? Or think about when a parent 
You might have the most straight-laced, buttoned-up guy in the world. Suddenly he has kids. And in public, he's making a fool of himself. Hey, there, little baby. What are you doing? Oh, look at daddy. Daddy's doing it. You're like, what happened to this guy? He cares more about what his kids think than what those strangers in the store or at the park think. He doesn't feel ashamed because he has the approval of the ones he's seeking it from. And in the same way, we glorify God when we joyfully follow Jesus, even if it means suffering, because we're showing that he's more valuable to me. He's more precious to us than anything suffering might take from us. I'll gladly give up reputation, relationships, possessions, anything for him, because he is my life, and he satisfies my longings. He's all I need and all I desire. That's why we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, Jesus is my life. That's how we glorify God without shame when we suffer. By showing the world that Jesus is better than any of your approval or lack thereof. Fifth. Fifth thing Peter wants us to remember is that our suffering is temporary and purifying. Look at verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now this one takes a little unpacking. So first, what is this judgment he's talking about? This judgment is the final judgment where God sorts out humanity into two and only two categories. There's those who trust in Jesus and those who don't. And you see those categories here in these two verses. On one hand, you've got the household of God, or in verse 18, the righteous. And on the other hand, verse 17, those who don't obey the gospel, or verse 18, the ungodly and sinners. And this judgment, Peter says, begins with us in the household of God. And it actually begins now in this age. For us, the judgment doesn't just wait till the end. It actually starts now. Now, judgment doesn't sound like a good thing to our ears. But for those who are in Christ, it is. See, what Peter's doing here is he's picking up a picture from the Old Testament. It's found in a few places, but one place he's probably thinking of is Malachi 3, verses 1 to 5. There, it talks about how the Lord will come suddenly to his temple, think household. He will come suddenly to his temple and then listen to how it talks about this Lord who comes to his household. Malachi 3, 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now this should sound familiar, right? Because it's the same picture we saw up in verse 12 about the fiery trial testing us. So when, what we see in Malachi 3 is that when God's fire encounters us as believers, it refines us. It burns away the dross. The judgment that we experience as Christians, hear this, 
The judgment you experience as Christians is one of purification, not condemnation. Because Jesus already suffered in our place and bore the wrath reserved for us. So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment of condemnation waiting for you, Christian. Not a little, not a lot. There's none because Jesus took it. Instead, God is judging us as a refiner to purify and prove our faith and make us a pure, spotless bride. However, in Malachi 3, when God sends this refining fire, on one hand, he purifies his people. But it goes on to say that he also comes in a different kind of judgment against those who are not his people. The same fire that purifies us who believe punishes and destroys those who do not believe. And this is what Peter's talking about when he says, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What Peter's doing is arguing from the lesser to the greater. When he says the righteous is scarcely saved, he doesn't mean that God was only just barely able to pull it off. He means that we are saved through great difficulty. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Paul said in Acts 14 that it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So for the believer, the road to glory is the path of suffering. So here's what Peter's saying. He's establishing that Now he's saying, listen, if that's true for those who believe the gospel, if it's that hard for believers now, what do you think is coming for those who don't obey the gospel? See, for the Christian, our suffering is only temporary. No matter how bad it is now, and it may be bad for you, But no matter how bad it is, Christian, one day it will end. And all our light and momentary suffering now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory later. So for the believer, this is as bad as it will ever be. Think about that. Your worst day, tell yourself that. You're like, yeah, today's awful. But you know what? This is as bad as it's going to get. But what Peter's saying is for those who reject Jesus, it's only going to get worse, friends. God's just judgment against sin is suffering that does not end. For unbelievers, God's fire doesn't purify. It punishes. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Friends, this is meant to be both a warning to those who don't obey the gospel and a comfort to those who do. 
If you're here and you are not a Christian, and what I mean by that, it's not simply that you would say that you would identify yourself as a Christian or that you regularly go to church or that you grew up going to church. If you are not trusting completely and only in the death and resurrection of Jesus to pay for your sins and give you eternal life in him, friends, this should sober you. We're not playing games when we talk about the gospel. We're talking about matters of eternal significance. And Peter wants us to know, he's telling you, if you think suffering is bad now, it will only be worse if you reject Jesus. But on the other hand, if you come to Jesus, if you turn away from the sin that you love so dearly, if you say, no, that is not worth it, the sin that promised joy and life is just leading me to the grave. Instead, I see there's a better joy. There's real life in Jesus. So if you turn your back on that sin and you come to him and you place all your hope on him and him alone, the comfort is that if you are trusting him, we won't face that kind of suffering. Notice how it says in 18, we focus so much on the word scarcely. Don't miss the fact we're saved. The righteous is saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. So friends, if you are trusting in Jesus, our suffering is not punishment, but purification. It is not eternal, it's only temporary. And because of all this, we come to our last point, which sums up the whole passage. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That therefore, he's saying, look, in light of everything we've just been talking about, of everything I've just said, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Why does Peter call God creator here? Do you know that it's a rarely used word actually in the Bible to actually in the New Testament, to call God creator. So why do you think he does it here? It's to remind us that God is sovereign over all things as the creator, including your suffering. This is the one who said to the ocean waves, this far you can come and no farther. And he says the same thing to your suffering. You can have them this far, but no further. He is in complete control and sovereign over everything you will face. And not only is he sovereign, he's faithful. He will keep all his promises. And he will keep you. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never turn from doing good to us. And he will work all things, including every moment of suffering for our good. And when it's over, he will raise us up in glory where we will experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in his presence. So because of that, what do we do? We entrust our souls to him. We place our lives, our suffering, and everything we are into his strong and trustworthy hands. We follow the example of our Savior who when he suffered for us on the cross said, Father, into your hands, I commit, same word, I entrust my spirit. 
And because Jesus suffered for us and because he entrusted himself to the Father, now you and I can entrust ourselves to the Father as we suffer for Jesus' sake. So Christian, as we face the fiery trials of suffering, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Because God is sovereign over it. He is with you in it. He is using it for your good. And it will lead to glory and joy forever.